This is Reading the Globe. It's January 10, 2022. I'm Michael Washburn, reporting live from New York. The Future of the Union The Economist's January 1 issue features a bold lead editorial entitled Walking Away about the perceived fragility of democracy in America one year out from the trauma of the January 6, 2021 riot at the Capitol. It sounds a dire note about the growing polarization of the country and the tendency of members of either major political party to view the other side with suspicion and fear. Much of what the editorial says echoes what we have heard lately from CNN and the New York Times, and could have been written on autopilot, as it were. But there are bright spots in the editorial. While making no secret of its disdain for Donald Trump, The editorial concedes that even today, many members of the Republican Party are not the slobbering bigots found in left-wing caricatures, but are patriotic people who want what is best for their country. Also surprisingly, the editorial makes a few constructive suggestions for bridging the divide and ameliorating the polarization. Looking ahead to the November 2022 midterm elections and to the 2024 presidential contest, The editorial predicts that Democrats are likely to continue to express concerns about voter suppression, while Republicans are certain to insist on the very highest standards of voter verification, accurate vote counting, and electoral integrity. The editorial proposes an election security law to anticipate and prevent crises from erupting over such issues. It is a pity that this interesting and astute proposal gets short shrift in The Economist's editorial. Only one sentence addresses what may be the key to averting political turbulence and crises in the future. The editorial does not offer any specifics on the content of such a law. But a bipartisan law that clearly identifies the criteria for voting and sets forth revised and upgraded protocols for collecting and counting votes, say, under the oversight of abundantly staffed bipartisan commissions that can provide proof of the validity of every vote tallied if and when called upon to do so, could provide that most precious foundation of the electoral process. It could help to ensure that both sides fully agree going into the election on what the rules are and that there will be no post-hoc efforts to move the goalposts, to re-litigate any aspect of the election, either in the courts or on the steps of the Capitol. When the results of an election come out, both sides will share a consensus that this is the result of the process to which they agreed in advance, that these are the results they pledge to respect. When you strip away all the heated rhetoric, it seems clear that both sides continue to believe in elections. The trick is to make elections above reproach. Off on the right foot? Many people concerned about the crime surge in New York City have welcomed new mayor Eric Adams, a former cop who did not mince words during the electoral race about the problems facing the city and the tough measures needed to turn things around. The crime plaguing Gotham is truly horrific. 
Just this past weekend, a robber at a Burger King in East Harlem fatally shot a 19-year-old cashier who had recently expressed concerns to management about her safety because of the lateness of her shift and the number of homeless people who gathered on the sidewalk outside, according to a January 9 report in the New York Post. This horrible incident comes on the heels of other high-profile crimes, including the murder of a Columbia University graduate student from Italy and the assault and robbery of a young Thai model on a 14th Street subway platform. One would like to think that the city really will take a new direction under Mayor Adams, who repudiates the weak, permissive stance of failed Mayor Bill de Blasio. Many of us still believe in Adams, even though he has defended one of his recent top-level appointments in a curious manner. An article by Sam Raskin appearing in the New York Post on January 9 details how Mayor Adams defended the choice of his brother, former New York cop Bernard Adams, to serve as deputy NYPD commissioner. According to the article, Bernard Adams' most recent full-time position is assistant director for parking at Virginia Commonwealth University a role that does not appear to have much in common with the awesome responsibilities of deputy commissioner of the largest police force in the nation. The article quotes Mayor Adams saying that his choice is a sound one because he needs his brother to protect him from the continuing threats posed by white supremacists and anarchists. According to the article, a representative for the mayor responded to a question about whether the mayor had received any threats from either white supremacists or anarchists by referring the question to the NYPD. Of course, it is entirely possible that the mayor has received threats from either group, but the mayor's justification for the nepotism of hiring his brother for this hugely important role seems curiously unattuned to the realities of life in the city. For most people who enter a dank subway station at 5 a.m., the danger of running into an anarchist is relatively low on their list of concerns. Street crime, not the ideological extremism of either the right or the left, has been and continues to be the issue of overriding concern for most people who live and work in the city, and the problem demanding bold decisive action from the mayor in whom voters place their trust and hope. The Road Not Taken in Vietnam All too often, the problems of the present become magnified, and we lose perspective and imagine that we today face crises unequaled in history. To be sure, the problems that America and the West face with regard to Russia's designs on Ukraine, China's territorial aggression toward Taiwan and the South China Sea, and the possibility of a nuclear Iran or North Korea are grave enough to say nothing of COVID-19. Historical perspective is most useful here. Even people who remember or have studied the Cuban Missile Crisis may not have an inkling of the very real possibility that nuclear weapons might have come into play in another theater of the Cold War in the 1950s and 1960s. An article by Eric Villard in the February 2022 issue of Vietnam Magazine, entitled, Did the U.S. Consider Using Nukes? looks into that question and says that, yes, no fewer than three U.S. presidents gave consideration to the use of tactical nuclear weapons to prevent North Vietnamese forces from overrunning key objectives. The contexts and stages of the conflict were quite different. 
1954, the article tells us, President Eisenhower and his advisors considered the use of nukes to stop Viet Minh forces from overwhelming the French at Dien Bien Phu. Eisenhower decided the international fallout would be too severe. Then, in 1968, General William Westmoreland, acting on a request from Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Earl Wheeler, initiated a secret study codenamed Fracture Jaw to look into the use of nukes to end the North Vietnamese siege of Khe Sanh. According to the article, President Lyndon Johnson was highly displeased to hear about this study. Then, toward the end of 1969, the article tells us, President Richard Nixon ordered a planning group to look into the use of nukes in the event that North Vietnam made unacceptable demands at the Paris peace talks. Like his predecessors, the article explains, Nixon found the likely political consequences made using nukes out of the question. Villard's article emphasizes the consideration given to political fallout, but it goes without saying that any sensible president would do everything in his power to prevent the use of nuclear weapons and to signal to the world that their use would be unacceptable and unconscionable. Public opinion is an important but far from the sole issue here. The use of nukes in Vietnam would have helped up the ante in conflicts worldwide, to a point where the annihilation of hundreds of thousands or millions of lives and the spread of radiation and devastation of the natural environment would come to seem not extraordinary at all. Let there be no doubt that the strategies the U.S. did put to use in Vietnam, deploying soldiers in the bush in a doomed effort to root out a highly mobile enemy who knew the land far better, were too little too late. This article enhances our understanding of a conflict where U.S. leaders could not find a happy medium between doing too little and the contemplation of going way overboard. A direct ground invasion aimed at paralyzing the enemy's war machine in Hanoi might have ended the war years sooner and saved many thousands of lives. Of course, we will never know, but here is one option we might wish U.S. leaders had the resolve to carry out. How the Mayans Lived Our understanding of the civilization and way of life of the Mayans takes another step forward with the publication of a short but intriguing article, New Neighbors, by Marley Brown in the January-February issue of Archaeology magazine. The neighbors in question are the city-state of Tikal in what is now Guatemala, and the much larger city-state of Teotihuacan, near what is now Mexico City. The article details how the use of a light detection and ranging, or LIDAR, survey has uncovered a ceremonial temple and courtyard in Tikal that researchers have found to be highly similar in purpose and design to the well-known edifice in Teotihuacan called the Citadel. According to the article, the relationship between the two city-states evolved markedly over time, and Mayans in Tikal may have changed aspects of the temple there. The article notes that in 378 AD, Tikal underwent conquest by a leader who probably came from Teotihuacan, and whose name in English is Born from Fire. The article quotes Edwin Wilman Ramirez, an archaeologist affiliated with the Foundation for Maya Cultural and National Heritage, 
who believes that the two city-states had a relationship extending over many years. Brown's article identifies a number of items that Roman Ramirez has found in Tikal, including incense burners and spear points, and that Roman Ramirez considers evidence of cultural transmission between the city-states, whether part of a voluntary relationship or a conquest. The article is a reminder of the splendor and sophistication, as well as the frequent aggression and conquest, characterizing one of the most fascinating and idiosyncratic ancient civilizations. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Original Production.